please be seated and grab your Bibles with me and open them up to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 15 today, Acts chapter 15. If you did not bring a Bible with you today, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you there and open it up with us to Acts chapter 15. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Paul and Barnabas and their missionary travels. We saw in chapter 13 how they were separated and set apart by the Holy Spirit, sent out from the church in Antioch on this missionary journey. And we've, we've cataloged the great success that they had, that God reached and, and changed lives through them and through their ministry, but also looked at the very many difficulties that they faced those that were in opposition to the ministry that God was doing through them, and, and we, we talked about that. And last week, as we finished up in chapter 14, we talked about the fact that after they had gone through these amazing trials and difficulties, even to the point where in one city, Paul was stoned and drug, drug out of town, left for dead. He gets back up, goes into that city, back into it, but then circles back around and goes back through all of those cities where they had faced all of that persecution and difficulty. We talked about that last week and how it was the fact that Paul had come to this realization that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's where we left off last week at the end of chapter 14. But if you are with, with us, understand Calvary Chapel, surprise, we go through the Bible verse by verse, and you might say, well, Pastor Brett, you kind of just referenced the last few verses in chapter 14. We didn't really talk about them, and if that is you, God bless you for paying attention like that. So we're going to back up just a couple of verses and look at the last couple of verses in chapter 14, because we left Paul at the, at the shores, if you would, before they traveled back to Antioch, and we see that now in verse 26, from there... They sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended by, to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. So here we see Paul and Barnabas getting back to Antioch, we see now that they are sharing with the church there all the things that God had done, the work that they had accomplished by the grace of God. And I, I like that, how Luke puts that phrase in there, the things that they had accomplished by the grace of God. Do you realize that when God uses you or uses us as a body to affect others, that is by the grace of God? There's nothing that we can do of any eternal value, of any glory to God apart from him. We can't do that on our own. It is only by his grace that he allows us to be a part of this eternal plan that he is, that he is working. And I want you to just embrace that for a moment because God in, in, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory says, you know what? I want to bless you by being a part of what I'm doing. I want to give you some, some blessing and some grace that I want you then to take and share with others. And then you do, when you do that, he says, I'm going to reward you for doing it. <laughs> That's how awesome God is. And that he would consider us, that he would consider us faithful, worthy of that, of that blessing. We don't earn that. Again, that's why it's grace. That again, by the grace of God, he chose to do that through us. 
I love what, he, what Paul, how he encapsulates this thought in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. He's the one who has given me the strength, the ability, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. What he's saying there, and again, embrace this truth, guys. He says, God, I thank him every day. I thank him all the time for this truth, that he would consider me faithful, even though I'm not. Even though I proved that I'm not faithful, he would consider me faithful. Then give me the opportunity, give me the power, give me the ability to then go out and be used by him. I don't know if that blows you away, but that thought just blows me away. And then they come back and they're sharing this and it it says that they reported all the things that God had done, opening doors of faith. So God not only equips us, he goes before us and he opens the doors of faith. We think so often it's up to us to knock down these doors. The people that we're sharing with and we're t- telling, sharing the gospel with and their hearts are hardened and we think that we got to kick the door of their heart open. God does that. God opens the doors. We simply go out and we follow as he commands and as he leads and as he equips. Revelation tells us, guys, that Revelation chapter 3, that God opens doors that no one can close. No one can close. Now, that doesn't mean that the enemy won't try to close them. That doesn't mean that the enemy won't be able to move that door a little bit, especially when we're walking through it, banging us a little bit. But that door can't close if the Lord opened it. Paul, writing... Again, to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he said, For a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The door's open. It's wide. God opened it. But that doesn't mean that going through it's going to be easy. But then I also love Paul also using this, this reference about a door opening. He asked in Colossians chapter 4, keep praying that more doors would be opened. No matter, no matter how much difficulty there is going through them, no matter how much the adversaries come and the enemy pushes against and tries to slam the door in our face, keep praying that more doors get open. As we transition now, we see into chapter 15, we see some of that opposition. We see the enemies, the adversaries coming through the door that, that the Lord has opened for for Paul, for Barnabas, for the church in Antioch. Notice it says in verse 1, chapter 15, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas began, had great dissension with them, they had great argument with them and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. It tells us that, that these, these men of opposition come. Warren Wiersbe, in his, in his commentary on chapter 15, begins it with this. It says, The progress of the gospel has often been hindered by people with closed minds who stand in front of open doors to block the way of others. 
these men, it tells us here that there's, there's some men. There are people that came from Judea and more than likely from Jerusalem, as we'll see in, in, a, in a little bit, unauthorized from the elders coming here, but bringing this message that says, okay, th- this whole idea of Jesus dying for your sins, that's a good start. But in order to be saved, you also have to be circumcised. And understand this, guys. The enemy, his first tactic will be Jesus or. That there's, there's all, all roads lead to heaven. You know, yeah, Jesus is a, is a great road if you like that. But if you don't, here's some other options. And you, all of these ways get to heaven. This idea of Jesus or. But if he loses that battle, his next one is Jesus and. Okay, yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And he, 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 cut the, he cut the trees out of the way, but you have to pave the road behind him, so to speak. And that's what's happening here. And understand, Paul tells us in Galatians that these aren't just some men. These aren't believers. These are false brethren, Paul calls them in Galatians chapter 2. False brethren coming to deceive the church. And they're saying... They're saying that, that, that you add these things to it, but Paul says there's a greater danger behind it. It's not just the simple rule of circumcision. Paul, again, and now in Galatians chapter 5, he writes, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. The underlying thing to this, guys, is it's not, it's not about circumcision. It's about adding anything to the completed work of Jesus on the cross for our salvation. And if we add anything, Paul is saying you have to add everything. You can't just pick and choose a couple of things. It's not Jesus and your daily prayer life that gets you to heaven. It's not Jesus and tithing that gets you to heaven. It's not Jesus and church attendance that gets you to heaven. It's faith in Jesus' completed work on the cross that gets you to heaven. It's faith alone in Christ alone that gets you to heaven. Anything added to that deletes the other. That's, and that's the danger that's here. That's why they're so passionate about it. The words that are used here, the great dissension, that is a passionate argument that is taking place. So much so that those that were hearing it saying, we got to get this settled once and for all. This isn't something that we can just pretend never happened. So they send a delegation down to Jerusalem to meet with with Peter and and John and the other elders. And we'll see James there as well. Sends them down. And I like this. It tells us also in Galatians, by the way, that there's a man named Titus that goes along and, and he's an uncircumcised Gentile as he's going to figure out what they're going to say about this. So he's got a little vested interest in the outcome as he goes. But he's, he's going along with them, and we'll, we'll t- pick that up in a moment. But verse 3 is kind of cool, I think. It says, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So here we see Paul, Barnabas, Titus, and some others from the church in Antioch on their way to Jerusalem, and it tells us that on their way, they're stopping by these other cities that have churches in them, that are the growing churches, Gentile churches, on their way, 
And it tells us that there was great joy. Notice what it tells us that they weren't talking about. They weren't talking about the argument that's going on in the church in Antioch. They weren't talking about the grumbling and the disputing. They weren't saying, you wouldn't believe these guys who showed up there and all the problems that they're causing and everything like that. And they, what does it say they were talking about? They were talking about Jesus. They were talking about the work that Jesus is doing. They were talking about how, how Jesus is changing lives and you won't believe what he's doing up in this other Pisidian Antioch and these other areas where we've been sharing the great news of Jesus Christ and what he's doing. And what does it say happened? Great joy. Great joy. Guys, the Bible's pretty clear. Paul says in Philippians, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that bothers me. Can't we do some things with grumbling and complaining? I mean, come on. I mean, we, you know, that whole thing, I got to get this off my chest. I got to, you know, whatever. You know what? You want great joy in your life? Leave that stuff behind. And when you move forward and you're meeting with people, you just share the love of Jesus with people. And you know what? You forget all that stuff. Let God take care of that. He's going to deal with it. Great joy, because they weren't grumbling and complaining. They were sharing Jesus. Well, verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. They, they arrive, they meet with the apostles, the disciples, and they're sharing the things, and there's some great stuff. And well, they gather together now in a bigger group, and it tells us that there are some Pharisees. And notice the difference from, the ver from verse 2. These Pharisees are believers, yet because of their past, they are, they're sympathetic to what they had heard up there. They're thinking, you know, because of all of this past and this history that we have, they should be circumcised. They should be. What's the difference between these men and the men in verse 2? Well, the men in verse 2, we clearly see, as we talked about, Paul said that they are false brethren. They're disbelievers. These guys are misbelievers. They're, they're new in their faith. They're still trying to understand and juggle this whole idea of, of the, how, how do we put together grace and the law. He says that, that they were Pharisees. That means from their very, their very childhood, since they were little boys, they've been raised memorizing and understanding the law and taught to keep it perfectly and taught to all of these things, all of the rituals, all of these things. They're struggling with this whole thing. And, and understand, guys, I mean, we, we forget <laughs> oftentimes because if you've been raised in the church or even if you've just been attending for a little while and we're going through Bible studies and we're doing all this, understand that these Christians at this time, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Hebrews, that hadn't been written yet, they're still, they're still understanding this as this truth is being revealed to them. And I love how this comes together because these men, as we continue to move through this and we see this, are part of the final decision that we're going to see they come to. It tells us that in verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you by the mouth of the Gentiles 
that they would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are tells us that they, they come together, they start, they start talking and debating. It's the same word used as earlier, except without the intense fighting. The same debate word is used there. There's still some, some debate going back and forth and an exchange of ideas and so forth. But it tells us then that Peter stands up and he says, guys, remember, it wasn't that long ago that God called me, and we saw this back in Acts chapter 10, to go visit a man named Cornelius and his whole family. Cornelius is a Roman centurion, a Gentile, and his family and friends, all Gentiles. Peter goes to his house, shares the good news of the gospel, and they are all born again. And he tells us that God testified to that fact because only God knows hearts, This wasn't just some superficial thing. God knows hearts, and he testified to the fact that they were born again by pouring out his spirit on them, just as he did to us, Peter said. So as we look at that together, he says God testified it, and he made no distinction between them and us, even though they are uncircumcised Gentiles. No distinction between us. And notice this. I love this in verse 9. Cleansing their hearts by faith. What follows that? Cleansing their hearts by faith. You might say, well, it says now, therefore. No, between faith and now, what happens? There's a period. Cleansing their hearts by faith, period. Not anything else. Not by their faith and. Again, Jesus only. Faith in Jesus only. Guys, there is such assurance in that period that we have as believers that we are saved by grace through faith, period. (laughs) Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for as many as are the promises of God in him, in Jesus, they are yes, Every promise in Jesus to you and I as believers is yes, period. (laughs) He says, guys, why then do you put God to the test? Why then do you put God to the test and now place a yoke, a burden on them that, by the way, our forefathers and us have failed to keep? And that question comes again to us as believers. Why? Why do we put God to the test? When we come to the Lord and we understand that we are, we are set free by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yet we can still put those things on ourselves at times when we say, man, I, I, I need a blessing from God, so I'm going to do this and this and this. Or 
we struggle with forgiving ourselves or struggle with guilt over things and, and that type of stuff. Why do we do that? Why do we put guilt on other people? Why do we put other burdens on other people when they're saved the same way we are? I'm not going to forgive that person until they come and say they're sorry and they buy me flowers and they blah, da, 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 da. Saved the same way we are. By the way, that's not what he said. He said, they're not saved the same way we are. Notice he said what he says, we're saved the same way they are. That's a subtle difference, but that's a difference. And again, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Author of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews chapter 10. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for sins, one for all time. Peter lays this out to them. Notice their response, verse 12, all the people kept silent. Hey, how do you respond to that? Then Paul and Barnabas, they, they jump on board and they start relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, saying, not only has God testified to this truth that they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by pouring out their Holy, the Holy Spirit on them, but he also has testified to this truth by the signs and wonders then that were done in their midst, God testifying through that as well. In verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James answered. Now this James is the half-brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, saw all of those things that Jesus knew, knew Jesus in, in a way that, that few others did as his brother, but did not believe that he was the Messiah until after Jesus rose from the dead. And it tells us that then Jesus appeared to James he becomes a believer and a leader then in the early church, and he stands up now, and it says, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about, about taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets, they agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, so I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Here James takes it again to another level. He says, yes, we've heard from Peter that God testified that the Gentiles are saved through faith by, by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter or Paul and Barnabas have testified that God, God has also testified to this truth by signs and wonders. And he says, and he's now testified, as we can see, by his word, by the word of God. This is not saying that this prophecy that's recorded for us has been fulfilled. This has yet to be fulfilled. But what he's saying is the prophets agree as well that the Gentiles are saved and become children of God through faith, not by becoming Jews. This all coming together here in this council as they are weighing through this issue. So clearly they're saying that 
Guys, we're all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Setting that doctrine forever as part of the church. Well, verse 19, he says, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but, and I want to read through verse 35, and then we'll come back and, and talk through it. So follow along with me. Verse 20, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you. So some, they understood that they came from there, he said, but they didn't come from us. We did not send them. Have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from the things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, if you keep yourselves from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others the word of the Lord. Okay, so we, we understand, again, very clearly stated that, that, that this idea that we are saved by grace alone. But the letter now that is written to them talks of a couple of things that, that as if we were to just look at that, apart from everything we've talked about already, would seem to indicate that there's a couple of extra things that are added. But we need to understand that, again, this, this doctrine has been set, that this is clear, that salvation is through faith alone. But we're going to look at also some practical things that they talk about now about this Christian life that we walk. Guys, as born-again believers... There are a couple of things that should naturally happen in our walk. First of all, relational harmony, and secondly, personal holiness. Those two things should be should that they should naturally flow in the life of a believer. First of all, we can look at this idea of relational harmony. In the letter, it talks about not eating meat that's been offered to idols and not eating meat from an animal that's been strangled or, or that has its blood, eating blood, that type of thing. What is that all about? Understand the cultural aspect and the peace that's going on. And I think the key to understanding it is verse 21. 
Notice it says, after he talks about this, he says, for. That means like because. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. We need to tell him to observe these things because in the cities that they live in, on every Sabbath day, they are taught in the, in the synagogues that you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat these, the, the meat that's offered to idols. You shouldn't do these things. So they are going to come in contact regularly with other people, other believers, who will take offense at those things. They're not saying that you need to do this to be saved. They're saying because you're saved and you want to be in harmony with those around you and you want to be a good witness and a good way to share this. Be understanding that there are going to be those around you who will take offense. Paul will later say, if you go to the house of a Gentile, if you go to the house of a non-believer and they serve you meat, don't ask if it was offered to idols. Just eat it. If they tell you it's been offered to idols, then don't eat it because you might, you know, that could cause somebody to stumble or be a problem. But don't even ask because it's not the eating of the meat that's the problem. It's what it could do and cause to others. Now, again, in America, we don't have that. That's not, a, that's not a problem. When you go to Burger King, you don't say, hey, was this offered to an idol? You know, or... <laughs> I will tell you, though, if you've ever been to Israel, and if you haven't, shameless plug here, October 2nd, we have a meeting after second service to talk about our trip that, that coming up next spring. So if you're interested at all, October 2nd, after second service, we'll have a little meeting and we'll talk about that. But... Last time we went, Pastor Donnie and I, it was on our, one of our last days there in an afternoon. We had a little free time in Jerusalem and for lunch, and so we, a bunch of people went to different places. And we went to this place, and we ordered a slice of cheese pizza. Now, you cannot get pizza there like you can here that has meat and cheese, because in Jerusalem, in Israel, they don't mix meat and cheese together. You can't get a cheeseburger there. You get a burger or a grilled cheese sandwich, but you can't do both because the old law that says in the law of Moses that you cannot boil a kid, a kid goat, in its mother's milk. And there's a whole lot of reason behind that. We can go into that another time. But because of that law that's stated, the, the Pharisees took it to such an extent that we don't want to take a chance that, this, that the meat and the cheese are related so you can't put them together at all, period. So that's why you can't get meat on your pizza. But it goes a step further than that. We get our cheese pizza. We walk down a couple of blocks and because it's a real crowded area. And we find a table and we're about to sit down. And this guy comes running out. You cannot eat here. You can't eat here. No, no. We're like, dude, what's going on? He goes, that cheese, you can't be here. I say, yeah, but there's no meat on it. It's just cheese. And he said, no, the people here are eating meat around you, so you can't eat here. Now, we could have said, dude, I'm saved by the blood. I can eat anything I want, wherever I want. You know, I'm saved by grace. But in respect to them, in respect to their culture, in respect to their beliefs, that didn't mean that we somehow believed that in order to get to heaven, we couldn't do that. No. It was a harmonious thing. We want to be in harmony. Paul writes in Philippians, and I think this really kind of sums this whole, this whole piece, this aspect of relational harmony together. He says, therefore, 
if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Notice the harmonious words there, same Mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's the goal. That's the what. Here's the how. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. If you have an issue with something, if you have a problem with something, I'm not going to come down on you for that. I'm going to hold that problem more important than my freedom. I want to have harmony with you. So if you're struggling in an area, I don't want to do something in my life because I have freedom to do so that will cause you to have a problem. That's the heart behind it. And when we look at the whole idea of conflict resolution in order to have harmony, there's a beautiful outline for it, by the way. I don't know if you saw it as we went through this of how to have this harmony if there is conflict. I've heard that in other churches, that there are people that have conflict. <laughs> I, I know we don't deal with that here ever, but just in case you come across somebody, there's a great outline you could share with them right here. Look back at verse 6. When it tells us that they were having these problems, look at verse 6. It says, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. That's the first thing. Come together get together, work through any conflict that you might have together. Don't separate and go to other parties and no, come together. And notice, this is really cool. And by the way, before I go into this next part, there is one proper interpretation for any section of scripture. And that is the, the interpretation that the original author intended to his original audience. That's just a rule of thumb whenever you're trying to interpret scripture. Because a lot of people have gotten way off track trying to interpret things in our current thing. So one, in, one, one proper interpretation, that's the original, from the original author to its original audience. With that said, I'm going to go completely out of that right now, because verse 6 says something really cool that the original author had no intent, but I think it's really cool, so I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to read this. I'm going to use the Greek word at the end. It says, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this logos. Now, if you're a Greek student or know anything, but that, that word is the word. They came together to look into the word. Now, again, that's not what the original author has intended. But you want to avoid a lot of conflict? You want to resolve conflict quickly? Come together with the word. Come together and look into God's word together. With a heart that says, God, I want you to speak to me. I want you to speak to us. I want you to resolve this. Because again, understanding that God's idea is for harmony amongst the brethren. That's his heart for us. But notice also then... As we continue, verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, so Peter speaks, but what did Peter do first? He listened. It said, after there had been much debate, after the discussion, Peter spoke. How many of us want to be the first to speak? When we're going to get together and we're going to resolve conflict, I want everybody to hear me first. 
You want to resolve conflict? You want to honor God as we go through our conflict resolution, if you ever have any? Let the others speak. James says, be slow to speak and quick to listen. Heard the illustrated, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. (laughs) And then when he does speak, notice he speaks the truth, but he speaks it in love. Tying us back to Philippians 2, 3, again, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. So we see here, no doubt clearly, speaking of relational harmony, but also personal holiness. He, they speak of keep yourselves from fornication. Just because, again, we are saved by grace through faith does not give us license to just go and live any kind of life that we want. Read Romans chapter 6. Paul's very clear. Does that mean that since we're saved by grace, we should go sin a lot so we give God a great opportunity to pour out a lot of grace? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, why would you, why would you become voluntarily slaves to those things that you've been delivered from? So there is an aspect here not only of relational harmony, but personal holiness. And as we, as we look at that, though, we can easily come to that conclusion, okay, personal holiness, I've struggled, you know, that's, that's something that we all that we all wrestle with, that we all deal with. So can't we just go back to verse 10 as our default? Why would, we, why would we test God and put on ourselves a yoke that we couldn't do before? But then again, Paul says, may that never be, that we would never have a heart like that. So how does this work? How do, how do, we, how do we walk in this? How do we walk in personal harmony we've looked at, but also a relational harmony, but now personal holiness? Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter eight, and that's where we'll finish this morning. Hebrews 8. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to set this up a little bit for you. The author of Hebrews is talking about the fact that now we've, he says, he starts off chapter 8, the main point is this, listen up, here it is, the big thing. We've touched on this a little bit. He said, he says later in Hebrews chapter 10, the sacrifice once for all. Jesus paid the sacrifice for us once for all, paying our sin debt, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down because the work's done. He sat down, when he sung on the cross, he said, it is finished, to tell us, I paid in full, that it is completely done. And then the author goes on now to talk of the new covenant through Jesus. The new covenant, he said the old covenant that, that was, that was the, the law through Moses, Moses was the mediator of that covenant, he said that there was, that's, that's where the, 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 God gave the law and the people said, we'll do it. And it was ratified, there was blood sprinkled on them, and in Exodus it's ratified there, it talks about that. But he's saying now there's a new covenant, Jesus is the mediator of that covenant. He says, and there wouldn't be a need for a new covenant if the old covenant wasn't a problem. The old covenant's a problem because of the promises, it says, and it's not God's promises that are the problem, it's ours. We said, we'll keep it. We didn't. So, That being said, now, as we look at this, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, it says in verse 6, here it is laid out for us. Now, the the author of Hebrews quoting Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 8. For finding fault with them, he says, 
Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the, by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they, will, they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete but whatever is becoming obsolete, growing old, is ready to disappear. Guys, first of all, just as an as a extremely important point before we get into the point that we're making over here, notice the covenant is with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. That's extremely important in the day that we live in today especially, where the world is pulling further and further away from Israel, where the United States is distancing itself from Israel, where even the church is separating itself from Israel. There is a teaching that goes around. It's called replacement theology that says that the church today has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. Guys, that is a lie. The Bible is clear. Uh, if you cite all through it that Israel has been, is, and always will be God's chosen people. As a matter of fact, Romans 11, speaking of us, you and I, Gentiles, saved believers in the room today, are grafted in to Israel. We're not a separate thing from them. We're grafted in to them. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that those of us belonging to Christ as Gentiles become descendants of Abraham. Okay, so that being cleared up, it is a covenant with them that we get to take advantage of being believers in Jesus Christ. But notice it says it's a totally different covenant than the first one that's the law. It's based on better promises, and what makes them better promises is they're all his. Notice, if you will, and here's a little homework assignment if you're writing your Bible. Go back through those verses that we just read and underline all the times God says, I will. There's seven of those. In just a few verses that we read, God said, I will. I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. All of our responses, all of our wills in there are based on his I wills. And guys, I guess I, I say all of that because he has given to us, as believers, when we are born again, we have been given everything that we need. Peter tells us that we have been given everything pertaining to life, eternal life, and godliness. Given to us. That's not something we manufacture. He has given it to us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, he did not say that, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
the natural byproduct of loving him. It's what happens when we love him. We allow the power and the ability that he has given to us as he resides in us, as the Holy Spirit in us, as we love him, our obedience naturally follows. And with this, as it ties up, I will remember their sin no more. He has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west from us. He has done that. And again, it is all because of him. It's not Jesus or, it's not Jesus and, it's Jesus only. But our challenge in this as believers again today, first of all, is to embrace that truth completely and totally. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus fully and completely, you've never rested in the completed work on the cross for you, you don't have that assurance. You're thinking that, man, I still got to do this and I still got to do this. I have to get in, in good favor with God. There's only one way to do that, and that's to surrender your life to Jesus, to trust in his completed work for you. So if you haven't done that, I want to lead you in a moment in a prayer where you can, you can do that, give your life to him. But as believers here today, let's embrace this truth again and, and rejoice in the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a done deal. But because of that, the natural byproduct as we walk this out should be harmony and holiness. But we can't do that on our own either. We need to rely completely on him. And the great part about it is when we do, then he does. <laughs> and it happens. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. If you are here today and that is you and you have never taken that step to surrender your life to Jesus, trust in him and him alone for your salvation, it's a matter right now of responding to the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. And you just go before him in your heart right now and say, God, I, I realize I, I'm a sinner and I, I can't fix this. I've been trying to get another way to you or trying to add things to the completed work of Jesus. And I believe right now that there's no other way. I, I need a savior. Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you paid the full penalty for my sin. So right now I ask you to come into my heart, come into my life and wash my sin away. Give me eternal life. I want to know that assurance. I want to know that all of the promises that are in your word are mine because of you. Lord, we thank you for, <laughs> thank you for that amazing gift. The gift of salvation in you alone. But Lord, we also understand that sanctification is a gift. The process of becoming more like you, the process of walking this life that you've given to us out the ability to have relational harmony and personal holiness lord we know that that is from you as well and we thank you for that lord we know it's not about imitating you it's about being invaded by you so 
as we worship you now, we pray that you would just fill us with your spirit. That we truly would leave here just so, so in love with you, Lord, that these things naturally just flow from us. We thank you, we praise you, and we worship you together now.